So why crypto? So why crypto? Why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Welcome to another edition of So Why Crypto, a podcast where we look at crypto as a technology. This is Vishal. My name is Quay, and this episode is going to be a little different than what we've done this season. What we're going to do, or what we've learned this season, is that we need to do education. Education is very important to the SoWi community, and you need to learn. And so we're going to do our part with that. And so today, we will have special guests coming on from the SoWi community. And before we invite them to join the show, Vishal and I have to talk a little bit. So this is the thing that I've learned this season, Vishal, or that I know nothing. <laughs> That's what I've learned. I learned that I just need to continue learning and, and looking into this crypto space, but then also taking these other adventures down to the function of money and things of that nature. And that's something that I've learned this season. So then my question to you then, right back at you is how, what have you learned? What are some things that have changed your perspective and you're thinking about this differently as you've been doing all the research and looking into these subject matters? Yeah. So this season, just working on this particular project, I've read multiple books on crypto, on money, on economics. Going back to my notes from previously doing to this this podcast, one of the things I ingrained in my mind that I didn't do before was that money is a tool. And so is crypto. So crypto is a tool. It's a form of money. We talked about it in the in the past. So once you start looking at money as a tool, begin to demystify money. Right? Just a tool. We're trying to get something done, and it's a tool that gets it done for us. So that's, that's the thing I kept going back on, um, just that. I didn't remind myself often that that's what it is. So, so for working and, and listening to our previous episodes or guests, talking to them or reading books, it was just a lot of that was money as a tool. And a couple other other learnings that come from doing research and talking to experts has been, one, there are, there are collective needs and individual needs, Right. So me, as money as a tool, I have these needs where I can specialize in something and then I can sell that goods or services to other people. Money needs to accommodate that, right? So we have that part done. And the other thing is that collective. So you live in a state, city, or a country. In this case, fiat tend to be more for a country, right? So the U.S. dollar or the euro or the peso in Mexico, whatever that might be, you have this collective need that society has, that money as a tool also takes into account. So that's where fiat comes in, where you can actually have the money supply go up or down, use interest rate, and we talked about a lot of this in the episode. So I think I think looking at two different angles as Money is a tool for individuals and also for society at large. Is a, is a really he- helpful mental model that you can have when you're evaluating it, crypto or fiat or anything else or gold standard. The second thing is since fiat is issued by the government, you have to look at the competence 
or incompetence of the government. That's another thing we talked about in length. That's really, really essential thing to to focus on. And uh, I think also just doing this project, the middlemen, the the problem of the middlemen that we we, we have put at put out as the crypto really shrinks the middleman. If you don't count Bitcoin or smart contracts as middlemen, it's basically eliminates it. So it's like having a botter person to person. With this particular technology, you can do it. So just looking at this as a whole, those, those are some of the key learnings that I have had, how I would actually look at money in the future. I'm just looking at a very fundamental level. Okay, what is it trying to do? And uh, yeah, it's been quite, quite a good journey as far as learning. And uh, it's been fruitful as well. How about yourself? What's been, you said, I know nothing. Sounds like Socrates. I know one thing, I know nothing. That's his quote. <laughs> what have you learned since then? I have a lot of questions that I'm going to ask you. So just get ready for that. But the, the thing that I always focus on is just money. And, and it, you are absolutely correct when you say money is a tool. We talked about this in our past episode of just how you can use tools. And tools have different skill levels and different usage and things of that nature. And so that's something that just bottles everything up into just this very specific use case of just that money is a tool. And so for me, that's something that I've never thought about growing up. And so now I take that and say, look, this is exactly where whether it is putting money into retirement or this or that. It's a tool. So just use it for what you know, but you have to do your research regardless of whatever you're doing when it comes to money. You got to understand what you need to do with it. And then that will let you then know what type of tool you need to use to get it. Yeah. There. So, so it makes so much sense to me. So we, we always talk about being clear, clarifying things, making sure that we were talking about things very specifically. And the other week I was making a Instagram post. And the Instagram post read, data is currency. And I just posted it. But then as I posted it, I started to think about, oh, man, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me take a step back. So I took the post down. Because, again, when we talk about clarity, I was like, is data currency? And when I speak of data, let me give you a little bit of context. When I, I work with data and I look at things of vanity metrics like impressions and just the engaging kind of data, streaming, ticket sales, things of that for musicians and creators. So in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I could see how it could be that could be used as currency, but it's not. Yeah. And I want to understand your thoughts on this. Yeah, a couple of things. So in the past, we talked about money versus currency. So money is a general category and currency is a type of money. Now, currency in the strict sense is something that's a legal tender that a government in a particular jurisdiction in a country had said, okay, you could use that as a legal tender here. So for example, in the US, the currency that you could use is the US dollar. That's a legal tender. What it does is creditors, if they lend you money, whatever's the legal tender, they are obligated by law to receive the money back in that particular form. 
Now, if you say data is currency, one is it's not a legal tender, right? So that breaks there. You can maybe make a case that it's a form of money because you could say, hey, Pokemon cards, somebody else wants it. That could be form of money because you could sell it for something. But in the strict sense of speaking as a currency, I would say it's not, just based on technicalities and how currencies are defined. Also, to throw a little bit in there, it would have to be used by a majority of people to also be considered. Would you say that's true? Because if one person finds value out of this, that's just one person. We got to. It's got to be a majority of people that Yeah, see. So, so, so yeah, the, the rule of thumb is, now again, we're not talking about currency. Currency is a legal tender. We're talking about money. If something that you can trade with one another for goods and services with relative ease, you can consider that money, mm-hmm. right? So you go to prisons, they have cigarettes, they have the Mac, and those are used as money because somebody needs a haircut or whatnot in prison, they could use cigarettes or the Mac. And the same thing is anything in the world that people can actually exchange it very easily, you can consider that money. So money is a really, really broad category itself. Right. And uh, currency is much more specific. Um, It used to be used just specifically for something that you can actually tangibly hold in your hand like notes and uh, coins. Now you have a little bit more of digital currency and whatnot. So some countries have Bitcoin as their legal tender, El Salvador, uh, namely. So uh, any as a currency, money, you want to look at it in that sense. Again, that being more technical, but to answer your question, yes, the data that might be money if you can exchange with other people, but I don't know if you could. I don't know if right. you could buy coffee or anything like that with the data that you have. Exactly. So on to my next question then. What is the need for other blockchains and cryptocurrency? Because in my mind, the Bitcoin and Ethereum are leading the way. And like to me, it's like, why don't you let these lead the way and then build off their success or learn from their mishabits, learn from the things that they've done wrong? And so what are your thoughts on what is in the need for other blockchains and and, uh, cryptocurrency? Sure. So before we even talk about it, so it's worth mentioning that blockchain technology in itself is open source. So Bitcoin code and Ethereum code is all open source that anybody can see, unlike PayPal or what some of these companies do is, is closed code, right? So you have open code, anybody can use it, they can copy it. It's worth mentioning. So the technology fundamentally, when it came out saying, okay, this is gonna be an open protocol. Anybody can see the code. So what it does is it allows other builders to, to look at, for example, Bitcoin and saying, we don't like this about Bitcoin. We want to be able to change it. And you bring it to the community. You bring it to core developers. And they might implement a change in it. If it's not, it's called a fork. So Bitcoin Cash, for example, is a fork of Bitcoin. And you can have two different protocols. So to answer your question, I think competition is a good thing when it comes to 
blockchain technology, just in general for things, right? Like we have a thing called monopoly, right? You don't want a monopoly on something. I know Microsoft gets in trouble for that. Having a lot of the computers just have Excel run or, or Microsoft software run. So having competition is a good thing. I think also there are different ways to get the end result. So if you're just trying to do peer-to-peer transaction, let's say with Bitcoin, there are different things different developer can look at it. I think that's where the forks come in. Like, hey, we want this to be faster. For example, Bitcoin takes 10 minutes per block. We want it faster, right? So you could fork it or you could build a new protocol saying, okay, this one could do it in seconds or milliseconds, right? Sure. Then you can have, hey, we want this to be private. So you have things like Monero and you have Zcash. So Zcash is actually a fork, or I don't know if it's technically a fork, but the code, they have taken it from Bitcoin and then they added the the privacy feature where you can actually hide your, where the money's going essentially. So you have much more privacy because the blockchain is, is open. Anybody can see transactions. Then you can have, I wanna make it cheaper. Right? So you can have that. And I want to make it more secure, less secure. Right, So you have all these different end goals within a blockchain technology that you can do. So I think having many different cryptocurrencies allow that to happen. And whatever the society will need will end up becoming the dominant one. So right now, Bitcoin as of 2023 it's about 40% domination as far as how much money's in it. And if you take Bitcoin and Ethereum, they combine about 65. I would say even more than that because there's a lot of stable coins, which is just US dollars on the blockchain. And yeah, we can go into details a little bit later. But anyhow, so if you even take them out, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum dominate about 80% of the market. So... Bitcoin being one, Ethereum being two, and a lot of the developers actually work on Ethereum. If you look at it, Bitcoin is a little bit more built in a way where it doesn't change much. So the the fundamentals are really ingrained in the community and the developers, and they don't want to change a lot of things. They're like, 10 minutes per block, we're not going to go less. We're going to keep that going because that's really important for what we're trying to accomplish in the security. So you have somebody in the Bitcoin Cash community saying, hey, we want this to be faster or cheaper. So they fork it. So they do it. The competition is good in that sense. I think in the end, we will get whatever majority of the people want. So Bitcoin community is really strong. And the people are really committed more than just for the money, for, for the principles, for even philosophy of life. Anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more down the line. But uh, to answer your question, why not more? It's the analogy would be having some kind of software that lets you do something and you're like, well, this does everything. Competition actually might do it better. Right. That's the way to look at it is like, hey, why not? Why not more, more cryptocurrencies? that could solve the problem. But it's hard to do, right? Like the fundamentals are pretty solid for those two that I've mentioned, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. And I don't think I knew that the market cap was so strong between 70, 80%. So that it's 
already happening behind the scenes without even knowing that they do already have such a dominance in the space. So that makes so much sense. So we speak about the middleman all the time, the problem of the middleman. So why is it so hard to solve the problem of commerce when it comes to the middleman? Yeah, two big things come to mind is trust and double spending. Okay. Okay. So the middleman is used for trust and for double spending. So let's look at trust first. So most of the infrastructure today that's built is pre-internet from the 70s and 80s. Most of the payment platform that are built, Visa, MasterCard, how they are developed, how the banking system is. It's a pretty legacy way of doing business. Now, the internet came in the late 90s, saying, okay, let's use that. So they ended up putting patch on top of this. Hey, this is how we could use it. It's an old technology. I used to work in the payment processing technology. One of the, one of the biggest thing I had was there's no innovation. Only innovation would be you put software on top of that, you get a new hardware, but like fundamentally it hasn't really changed much. What it does provide, if you really look at it, is the trust. So you buy something from someone and now you're not happy with what they provided. It's a goods or services. What this particular middleman, let's say Visa, MasterCard, or your local bank, allows you to actually do a dispute, right? It's called a chargeback. And that is a trust built in it for both parties who are getting involved, saying, okay, Visa, MasterCard, or the local bank have made sure this transaction is approved so I can actually send this person goods or services. And on the other end, the user, the person who holds a credit card say, hey, look, I can actually trust this system, this middleman. If they don't give me the goods and services that I want, I can actually do a dispute. So trust is a big factor that has a lot of middlemen. So Visa, MasterCard has a lot of different layers. We don't do technical stuff here. But when you pay, when a business pays 3% to Visa, MasterCard, so you can actually pay me a transaction. There's a lot of middlemen who actually gets a piece of that. Right. And that's how the system is built. So because of that trust, that middle, those middlemen need to get paid. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And the number two we talked about is double spending. So one of the hardest things to solve that has been since the internet has been around is, let's look at it this way. I have a file that only has a thousand copies on my computer, right? Let's say it's a PDF file or something, some kind of book. And uh, it's somewhat of a collectible. And now if I send you the copy via email or airdrop, now you have a cop, you have a 1001 copy and you can send it to hundreds and thousands of people. The scarce part of it now, people can just duplicate it and keep sending it is called a double spending problem, like where you can just make infinite copies. Now, a US dollar note, it's very difficult, first of all, to make a copy of that compared to a file that you just send it to somebody. It brings this double spending problem, which Bitcoin was able to solve, where you can't take the same Bitcoin, let's say you have one Bitcoin in your wallet, I can send it to you, but I can't send it to somebody else. That's what this particular protocol, Bitcoin, first solved it and all the cryptocurrencies can do the same exact thing, just replicating what Bitcoin did. So that's the brilliance of it. So the middleman, the two reasons you use it is 
pay the trust and the double spending. This is on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. In person, we can actually uh, use the currency. You can just use other things, but on the internet, it's much more difficult to do. So those are the two things makes the problem with the middleman is hard to solve. And I think that's where this particular technology has the potential to disrupt it. Right. So the idea is, is not to eradicate the middleman, it's to shrink the middleman. Yeah, depending on if you define Bitcoin and Ethereum as a middleman or not, and a smart contract to be a middleman or not. Yeah, essentially, instead of 3%, maybe you'll pay 0.0001% in the future. Right. Or using a lot of middlemen in different things because you have to trust them then we can build a code that can actually do that for you. Again, this is early stages in the crypto space. And a lot of builders are building it and people need to use it. And uh, and we'll see where the future goes, but that's the potential of this particular technology. So Chad Bearford, one of our guests, very passionate about how decentralization could solve worldly problems. If I remember correctly, he was very, very passionate about this. I actually, he got me, my blood pumping when he talked about some of the situations in the world that he feels that decentralization can help. So I remember this well. Can decentralization help society and communities bridge the social economic gaps? Yes and no. All right, so let me make a case for both. So yes, this permissionless peer-to-peer transaction that Bitcoin enables and Ethereum and all these other technologies in the crypto space does. So that allows people to do a lot of things they couldn't do before. So for example, if I wanted to send you money, let's say you lived in a different country or even within the same country, I had to go to a bank if we weren't physically in one place to send it through PayPal, through MoneyGram, through different services, right? So the middleman gets their cut, a fee. They also get your information saying, hey, Vishal is sending this to Quay. Here it is. With this technology, you can just skip the middleman and just go directly peer-to-peer saying, hey, what's your wallet address? You text it to me, you send it to me, and I send you 100 bucks, just like that. So in that case, it, it really solves a big problem where we can do peer-to-peer transactions much more faster. If you look at data, the majority of the world doesn't even have a bank account. So this enables people to have that, so that financial structure, because a lot of the companies haven't built it because there's not a lot of money to be made from it. And I think this particular technology can do it, right? So even though your net worth is 100 bucks, 50 bucks, a dollar, it doesn't matter. You can set up a Bitcoin wallet and send money, right? right? So in that case, yes, it's a really interesting thing that you could do peer-to-peer. Now, will it solve a lot of society problems? Absolutely not. Even some practical things like being able to send this, let's say we put a lot of this technology in work to being able to buy a house from a person to person. And we buy a house from a person to person, we take out the escrow company, we take out even the mortgage company, we take out a notary, we take a lot of different middlemen who makes money in this particular transaction. And we can do a transaction with each other on the blockchain. Instead of, uh, let's say, the property's $100,000, we have to pay 5 or 10% to real estate agent, you name it, all these people. Mm-hmm. So 
we can actually save that, let's say, make it into a dollar instead of $10,000. We save a lot of money. So the $100,000 of the 90000 goes to, let's say, you're the buyer. I am the seller. It'll go to me. Now we can actually have 95000 goes to me. Now you get 5% cheaper. I get 5% more. It's a win-win situation with the technology. You can do it. However, here's the problem. What happens when there's a dispute? There's a reason why you have the notary why you have the escrow company, why do you have a real estate agent? A lot of these different things are put in place in cases of disputes, right? So those happen in the real world mm-hmm. quite often. And what if you sell me a house that already you sold it to somebody else, right? So there's gotta be some kind of repercussions that we can actually go back. So this technology hasn't figured that out yet. Perhaps it will one day. So things like that, I think the, a competent government, we keep talking about this, having a competent government who can actually have these rules and laws in place to protect buyers and sellers, right? So I can't send you a, sell you a lemon or I can't sell my property to, to multiple people. So it's protected in that sense. And whatever money you want to give it to me, make sure it's also legit so there's no lawsuit down the line as well. So it's going to build infrastructure over time, that's going to solve a lot of these problems, but uh, I don't think it's going to ch- solve all of them. Right. So I would sort of walk off that and let's see if we could do one thing and another thing, another thing. So I think the biggest thing the Bitcoin and the crypto technology can do is just peer-to-peer transactions, right? right. So can we get all 8 billion people who live on this planet have access to the banking and financial structure? I think that's what Chad was talking about. So right. I just wanted to put in a context, there's a lot of things that competent government can do. The technology as of now can't do it. Look, Chad, thanks for getting me riled up a little bit because it was good information to understand. And I do believe just with some of the different technologies that are out there in the world that people are working on the technology to do bigger and better things. So that's a great thing. So that was pretty much all the questions that I had doing so why crypto learning a little bit learning about myself and then coming back and researching and now we talk about it so that's how i get my information out so i just want to say that vishal and i believe in mass adoption we were trying to do our best in trying to get this technology out into the world and that's what mass adoption is getting society more people in society to be in this crypto space and so by teaching There's people out there that need to learn. And so when we first started down this path, I think we thought of So Why Crypto one way. And then as we started doing the season, we started to pivot a little bit here and there. And so with that said, we wanted to make sure that we always engage our So Why community. And so with that said, we have some people that are ready to talk to us a little bit about some of the things that are going on in the crypto space and listening to the season. They may not have understood a couple things here and there, or maybe something that the guests have said and wanted a little bit further clarification. So with that said, we have three guests that are going to come on and ask a couple of questions. Are you ready to bring them in? Let's do it. So why show? Okay. So with that said, our first guest, her name is Kathleen. Kathleen, go ahead and introduce yourself and ask your questions. Hi, everyone. I'm Kathleen Callahan, and I've been listening to the Why Crypto podcast. It's 
sparked a lot of curiosity in me, and I wanted to follow up with some questions on some of the people that came on the show and the ideas that were presented. So my question is in reference to the Brian Estes episode. So Brian said that he believed Bitcoin is the most viable crypto to become a long-term currency. He also mentioned that the Fed recently classified Bitcoin as a commodity, whereas other cryptos like Solana and Ethereum are classified as securities. Why is Bitcoin a commodity and the others are securities? What are the foundational differences between those? It's a good question. So one of the things I should clarify, what Brian had said, Brian said, Bitcoin is store of value. He doesn't consider Bitcoin to be a currency, which I agree with. And it's a store of value. And perhaps in a long term, somewhere down the line, we're talking decades, that it could be a currency. So just wanted to clarify that's what Brian had said. So I don't want to misquote Brian. So we talked a little bit about legal tender. So legal tender is something where a government approves that this is a legal currency. So for U.S. is U.S. dollar. Europe has part of Europe says euro. U.K. has a pound. Right. So that's a legal tender. El Salvador has U.S. dollar and Bitcoin is a legal tender. So those are things that creditors can actually get paid from. The debt, debtor can pay the creditors with that particular currency, right? So that's what it allows within the jurisdiction. So that being said, now Bitcoin is considered a commodity in the U.S. And this is something that's defined by the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. So there's this department. That's what they do. So the way they describe commodity is something like that's corn, oil, wheat. You have any natural resources that could be considered a commodity. Now, the definition is not really clear. So this is where they come in and they say, hey, this is considered a commodity. It has been categorized as a commodity, not a currency, because it's not a legal tender. So it cannot be used to pay the debtors and creditors. So they strategically have said, okay, this is a commodity. You may hold it in the U.S. because we consider it as a commodity because all the commodities that are people can actually hold, right? So... The securities, so if you look at anything else, depending on Ethereum, Solana, all these other cryptos outside of Bitcoin, they are still up for debate whether they are commodities or securities. So the Commodity Commission says they're still looking at it. They're thinking it's a commodity. Now, if you look at Gary Gensler, who's the chair, chairperson of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, he thinks... Bitcoin is a commodity, and he thinks everything else is a security. So security, the way to look at security is more, it's an investable asset, just like stocks and bonds, and such as other investment investment portfolios that you can have. And they're taxed differently. So there's a lot of implications. We don't need to go into detail. They're taxed differently. They're taxed differently in the U.S. versus Europe versus Canada versus Mexico versus other places, right? Mm -hmm. So this, they haven't been classified as securities yet. We're talking about outside of Bitcoin. They're looking into it. So there's a big debate. So Gary Gensler actually was a professor at MIT, actually taught 
blockchain technology. So he understands this really well inside out. And he has been villainized by most of the crypto space. <laughs> Rightfully or not, I don't know. I don't really have much say on it. I just think the U.S. regulators are looking at it very carefully. The crypto people want to move it fast as they can. They don't want to even see, hey, all these scams that happen in between where part of the regulation is to protect people. So if something that's on NASDAQ or S&P 500 or securities that you can exchange, they are really well regulated, right? Can they go wrong? Of course they can, but there's a lot of different things that they have to do. So I think the U.S. government is looking into it like, hey, how can we actually regulate it where a regular investor that comes in who might see, oh, there's a potential to make a bunch of money in Ethereum, but don't really understand the risk factor involved in it. So when you go buy a Tesla stock or Apple stock, Apple has to do a lot of things in the back end with the government, show them their P&L. There's a lot of different things they have to do. Anybody who's on the board needs to declare where else they have investment. So there's a lot of things that are put in place by the government. So this is a big debate, whether it's a commodity or a security, and it's still ongoing and it's going to be based on a country to country. I mentioned earlier that El Salvador and a couple of countries in Africa have made Bitcoin as a legal tender. Mm -hmm. So again, those are really, really small countries with really tiny GDP. It's going to be an experiment to see what happens from there. I hope that, that help people understand a commodity versus what's a security. Yeah. So, Kathleen, that, that makes sense. Does that make sense? I believe you have... Yeah, I, I would add one more okay. thing that, depending on the country we talked about, it's going to be country to country. So, China is banning crypto altogether. In El Salvador, we talked about it's a legal tender, Bitcoin is. And then you get the U.S., the regulators are really looking into it deeply. So every country is going to look at it differently, how they're going to put it into a commodity, legal tender, or securities. That is being debated. So earlier in one of our episodes, we had Florian, who's a, who's a smart contract expert, who's also a lawyer. He's looking into a lot of this in the Europe. How are these going to be categorized as securities, as commodity? And uh, I think it's a long way to go. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of debate on where it needs to go. I think regulation plays a pretty critical role where average investor needs to be protected. Do you think that more government regulations will help people to have more trust? When we're thinking outside of the people that truly are the early adopters when it comes to the crypto space, when you think about the people that are the laggards, the trust is built when the government puts its hand in it? It depends who you ask, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people who are in the crypto space have this libertarian philosophy, right? We don't want a lot of government. We People should be able to decide and then live with the consequences of their decisions, right? So a lot of that is libertarian philosophy. And... Uh, so there's something to it. 
people can own Bitcoin. They've been able to own it for a while now and Ethereum and whatnot in, in different countries. When it comes to mass adoption, so when it comes to like big companies that are holding people's retirement fund, which I know Brian works with a lot of them, one of our guests, then you have big funds that are, whether it's family trusts or these funds who are holding a large chunk of money and they invest in different things, they want this to be regulated. Because what the regulation does is it goes to a rigorous process where this process actually decides whether this particular investment is actually like how risky it is. And uh, this is all these things the investor needs to know when the government can actually ask questions saying, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? So for mass adoption, which sounds like what a lot of people who hold Bitcoin and Ethereum want, this is going to be one of the criteria where the government needs to come in and look at this open the hood saying, okay, we want to answer to this. We want to answer to this. We want to answer to this. And uh, depending on your philosophy, I think all those big companies are not very libertarian. They're like, hey, we want the government, again, a competent government to look into it, see how you classify it. And we talked about in previous episodes, right about now, about 60% of all foreign exchange happened in the U.S. dollar, which tells us that the world votes with their money that U.S. government is the most competent government. Right. You could debate that. Some people think it's Singapore or something. It's a different part of the world. But where the money is in the U.S. as far as a foreign exchange, the largest GDP, I think a lot of people are looking at the U.S. like, how are they going to regulate this? How do we look at Bitcoin, Ethereum, different cryptocurrencies, how people will be protected? I think that's when the large chunk of money comes in. So you have you have Yale, Harvard, they, they have billions and billions of dollars that they would put into it. But it all, they're looking for, make sure the regulators have gone through rigorously and take a look at every single thing that can go wrong with it. and. Regulated is essentially to protect. Kathleen, I jumped in on your question, so sorry for that. I had to ask this question because it was in my mind. So I believe you have another question. Go ahead and ask your question. Your second question, please. So Eric Yates discussed the process of making software changes being proposed by developers. How are these developers being compensated, and how is it determined that a change is necessary? With currency being decentralized, my biggest concern with Bitcoin is the lack of government regulation and oversight. I'm obviously like reflecting what I've been told my whole life. So I'm just interested to see how the system is protected from self-interest over the good of the system. I think it's a really, really great question because you're bringing in one of my mantras that I, I've learned over my research is there's individual and then there's a collective. So we talk about libertarian point of view is where there, there's an individual liberty, individual responsibility for their own actions, and you have limited government, you have free market. And there's some more things that libertarian point of view philosophy looks at. And I think they're all valid. That they're, Obviously, people can exercise them. There's not a ton of collective 
in the on the economical sense is looked into this. So the way the modern economy is set up, where that's where we talk about regulations come in, is where you are protected. We talked about it in the past. One of the reasons that people are willing to write long-term contracts, like buying a house with 30 years or, or business or land or car. One of the reasons they can do it because there needs to be a predictable inflation, right? So the U.S. aims for 2%, Europe 3%, right? A competent government can make it happen. And that's why you would write a long-term contract as far as buying something long-term. So if a 2% inflation, you pay 5%, you're like, all right, I'm paying about 3% in the end, right? If you can get a 2% loan as a 2% inflation, you're essentially getting free money in the sense of you're not actually paying any interest, right, with the inflation adjustment. Mm-hmm. A competent government can do that, right? So this is where the collective comes in, where inflation deflation cannot be managed if you go everything in the system on top of Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the cryptocurrency, where relatively the supply is uh, is fixed, right? We talked about gold standard in the past, why it doesn't work in the modern economy in previous episodes. So anyhow, so that's what's one thing to look at. So I think Kathleen brings in a very good point. Also, currency, we talked about currency earlier. Currency is something that's a legal tender by the government that you could be used. And then there's a store of value, which is one of the functions of the money. So you have you have store of value, you have medium exchange unit of account. And store of value is something that Bitcoin does really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as unit of account and medium exchange, it doesn't do that well. Again, we talked about it quite a lot in the past. And uh, okay, so the other question was, how is the software changes? It's a complicated question. So one of the things that happens, just talk about Bitcoin, it's helpful to talk about one protocol, is been around for over a decade, and any major change that needs to happen, it gets discussed by the community, it gets discussed by developers, core developers. It's very difficult to make changes to Bitcoin. That's by design how... It came about saying, we don't want to change things fast. Fundamentally, we want the supply to be this. We want this to go to 10 minutes per block. There's many, many different things that get discussed in the Bitcoin community. Now, the core developers can go and write a new software. The There are miners and nodes that are also involved. They don't have to adopt the new software. They can keep using the core software. Some people still using the core software from when Bitcoin first came out, it still is compatible. That's how it's designed. And so what it does is actually creates this system where the powers are divided amongst different people. So you get the core developers who can actually come up with this different idea, discuss it. Then you get investors who people are going to want to buy it. Then you got the nodes and the miners who also have a say in it. Are they going to get the new software or not? This is where the forks happen. So there's a big disagreement you ended up making from Bitcoin to Bitcoin gold, Bitcoin cash. And you have seen with Ethereum, you have Ethereum classic, right? So you can have a fork where 
we actually don't fundamentally agree with you anymore. We're going to do this new thing. It's somewhat like religion. Like you got this Christianity. Oh, we're going to be Catholic. We're going to be this particular one. We are fundamentally disagreeing on a lot of things. We're going to start changing how we go about doing business. So one of the great things about this particular technology that allows you to do it and the way to look at it is amongst the whole crypto community, Bitcoin is the most dominant one, about 40% or so uh, of all market cap is into Bitcoin, which tells you the confidence level from people. And uh, also the community is the strongest in the Bitcoin community, in my opinion, as far as what people are committed to the fundamentals of it. Yeah, so to make change in the code is much more complicated than you would think. Hey, it's not like just PayPal, there's somebody sitting in the back and they can just do it. Right. The nodes, there's over 10,000 nodes that need to actually also accept it. And, uh, and Bitcoin has shown over time that it actually holds to its fundamentals, right? And it has, and this is part of the reason why it's considered one of the most, it's the most valuable crypto protocol amongst all of them. Kathleen, thank you for your questions. And more importantly, thank you for listening to our first season. And obviously we plan on having the season two, but thank you for being with us and make sure you follow us on all our platforms. So why crypto as we will be engaging more with our community on different things. So we have our other guests coming in. His name is Francisco. Francisco, can you please introduce yourself to the world and ask your question? Hey, Kwai, Michelle, how are you? I have another question about the system Eric discussed. Miners have to spend all day letting their computers run to do the mining, and there has been some concerns with the sustainability of the electricity used for this process on a large scale. One of the benefits to Solana was that it was more sustainable mining process but it sounds like it will not be the primary cryptocurrency. What is your take on sustainability within the crypto space? What sort of things are being done to address the energy challenges? Good question. That's been one of the big concerns, right? We, uh, energy being, being used to mine Bitcoin. It's part of the design, just like gold mining, we talked in previous episodes about 2% of supply increases every year in gold because it's really efficient because it takes labor, it takes energy, it takes tools to mine new gold. The same thing, same mechanism that Satoshi Nakamoto, when he developed, he or they, we don't know if it's one person, when they developed the Bitcoin, and they took the principle from gold where the inflation is controlled over time for Bitcoin. And one of the things to to look at Bitcoin is there's energy being spent. So a lot of people talk about, hey, it's not green. Why are we doing this? So first thing I would say is the current financial sector, the banking also take energy, right? So uh, it takes all these branches being open and all these offices and travel for meetings and whatnot. So they use a lot of energy. You can compare it. A lot of people have and they will say, look, banks are using more energy than Bitcoin. Sure. But let's look at it differently. I think that's a very simple one. People do look at it. 
how does Bitcoin can revolutionize how we even use energy? So one of the things that El Salvador has done is one of the things that experimenting is they want to mine their Bitcoin by using volcanoes energy. So the big problem in the energy sector is you can have solar middle of nowhere, but transporting is the hard part, right? That takes a lot of infrastructure and also you lose energy from going from point A to point B, depending on how far it is, right? So they're saying from volcano energy, we can actually capture it and use it to mine right then and there. Right, so we actually don't need to build the infrastructure where it's hundreds of miles away, right? So I think you're going to see a lot of this technology where in a desert you can actually capture a bunch of solar energy, but you can't, there's nobody living nearby. You can actually mine Bitcoin in it, in, in that space. And it's worth mentioning what the mining does is actually makes the whole system secure, and again, we can go to more technical later, but the energy is necessary to make sure that it is actually secure. And Bitcoin, by many experts, is considered to be the most decentralized currency, cryptocurrency. And just because the sheer 10,000 miners and how much energy they put in, and it takes a lot of resources, and those resources help decentralization. Um, so those are some of the big things. I think mentioned Solana. Solana is not considered by many experts to be the most decentralized compared to Bitcoin or neither Ethereum or anything else. Will we have a new technology which makes it more efficient? Possibly. Possibly could happen. I think also can Bitcoin mining push how we... How we use energy, because a lot of incentives are going to be in place where as the Bitcoin price keeps going higher and higher, where more and more miners are going to be thinking of this technology. How can we can actually capture more energy and green energy to be exact, where it's not uh, polluting, polluting the planet. So that, that's, been a, that's been a big thing, too. There's been a lot of studies on how more and more green energy is used to mine Bitcoin, and that's been one of the core things that Bitcoin has been working on because that's one of the objections you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's many, many nuanced ways of looking at it. I think energy is going to be used in mining Bitcoin because that's essentially what makes it secure. Right. A buddy of mine also is thinking about how to do this in renewable and just having these different types of harnessing energy so they can mine too and he's his idea was setting up warehouses near uh, rivers and streams and to harness some of that energy so that that's his idea i think he's pitching to some developers and investors right now but there are many ideas like that yeah so i think energy is one of the difficult difficult thing to solve a lot of smart people are working on it and perhaps bitcoin can help in that way so that's one way to look at it as a nuanced way of approaching this particular problem exactly francisco thank you for the question we really appreciate it again thank you for listening and we have one more guest here that has a question edgar introduce yourself and go ahead and ask your question hey guys love the show so why crypto it's edgar from los angeles if it isn't obvious 
So two questions for you guys. Hopefully they're not too hard. So number one, how will crypto and blockchain tech influence other industries? I think we all want to know. Um, a lot of us just worry that it's only finance driven and we don't really see other opportunities outside of that. So just can you guys share just like what other applications go beyond finance? What else can we, where else can we use crypto? How can it apply such as like supply chain management, decentralized governance or intellectual property rights? Would love to hear more from you guys. Keep it going. Edgar from Los Angeles checking out. Okay, so people are already working on supply chain management right now. There's no need to have Bitcoin or any other tokens or coins to be connected to that. So I think that's already being solved by blockchain technology because you want the transparency part of it. You don't necessarily need the money part of it. So that, that being worked on in many different ways. I think DAOs are an interesting idea. It's essentially the same way we govern today, whether it's a corporation or a government that people vote. I think government's governance itself is a challenge that DAO is going to have to solve and going to have to think creatively. I think that's where the iterations happen. One of the ways to look at DAOs is everyone who participates on a DAO needs to have a wallet, needs to understand crypto, needs to understand technology a little bit more than average person to participate in. So the so there's this barrier to entry already in it, right? So if let's say you, me, and four of our other friends wanted to start a DAO, and only you and I knew how crypto wallets work, we have to educate them before we started, right? It would be much more easier just to put some kind of bylaws together and start a company or whatever we wanted to do. So there's this barrier to entry. I think over time we will solve that. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Then the second thing is who gets the vote? And this is a really old question. For example, when the U.S. founding fathers first said who could vote in the U.S., it was, they said, people who own land. So they wanted to see that who has skin in the game, right? Who owns land in the U.S. could actually vote. Obviously, over time has changed. I think that's an interesting way to look at, like, who can actually vote, right? So what a DAO is, let's define it, decentralized, autonomous organization. And if you have coders who are builders, they understand the protocol so much more than an average user. So let's say you and I own tokens and there's Satoshi Nakamoto is also on there. Satoshi would know a lot more about Bitcoin protocol than you and I would know. Should Satoshi get more votes than we should? I think that's an interesting thing. So in the beginning, the protocol gets pushed by whoever the builders are. Eventually, it goes to the users. But... Who are the experts who really, really understand it versus people who don't? And this is, this, again, it's an old problem in the U.S. when the founding father had thought of this particular problem too. And that's part of the reason how the voting over time have changed in the U.S. where landowners vote and then you had representatives who would vote for their representative. And over time it has changed. So that's another big problem that you should bring up in, in the DAO. Are the people who are builder or people who everybody get to vote? Now, the third thing is if 
who has more tokens? If I have more tokens, do I get more votes? Then I can literally take the DAO wherever I want to take it, depending on how many votes I get. So those are some of the fundamental problems. I think DAO is looking into it. I think it's a very interesting pro thing to look at because we always need to govern ourselves. And we talk about having a competent government, also having a competent place, how our DAO works. So typically now which is when a project starts, a small team is working on it, they move it where they want to move, and eventually they start involving the community, give them token, give them votes. So anyhow, so that's about DAO. I think it's an early iteration. We're going to get to a better iteration. You have a couple of DAOs that are very, very interesting. I like reading about them that are solving these things. And then I think the other question was about intellectual property. So I think NFTs are working on it. It's happening. If you're talking about literal property, like a physical property, I know Latin America is working on putting a lot of this stuff on blockchain. And then you have intellectual properties like owning digital art and other things that could be physical too, like albums and other things that NFT is working to solve that particular problem where a bunch of people can own it, but they're on the internet, they only have to be physically in one place. The code can solve it. Um, I think that technology is being built as of now. I know you're in the NFT space. What are your thoughts? I, I think NFTs are amazing. I know we're not to that space yet where they're common in mass adoption. However, I think just from the standpoint of there's so many people that work on music, publishing, writers, the producer. And so the way that I see it is you can write people into the NFT smart contracts to be able to distribute the right amount of money towards those people or not. This, and we talk about shrinking the middleman. I think that's what NFT smart contracts are going to be are going to do in the music space is making sure people are getting the adequate money that they are owed. And, and then also that money can go just straight to the artist. So I think NFTs are very interesting and artists should not think about sharing their IP with anyone. I think they should all keep it in the blockchain and work on it in those ways. And so I find it very interesting in this NFT smart contract space. Again, it's early, right? So yeah. there's going to be some iterations and uh, there's going to be some mistakes made and yeah. they'll be fixed. Yeah, And that's, I, that's a good thing about software, right? I've seen something that, and we're not going to get into this at all, but i just seen something that there's this, this new ERC that will make smart contracts much better than they were in the past. So uh, I, maybe that's something we'll talk about in season two, but could we need to do our research on it. But those things, hearing that the technology is changing so quickly is always fun to hear. Thank you, Edgar, Francisco, and Kathleen for being a part of the Soul Wide community. And once again, thank you for listening to the first season. It's amazing. And we appreciate that you listen. And remember, we'll be doing more engaging events like this. So you can follow us on our Instagram, Twitter, or website at So Why Crypto. So with that said, moving the show a little differently. Again, this is a show about difference. We're changing it up a little bit. In our research and joining Twitter lives and all these different conversations that are happening on the World Wide Web, we've come across just questions that I think 
I've seen it multiple times in the space that I think we can answer. And again, it's all about the education part of here. So why crypto? So these are some of the questions that we come across that we definitely want to answer. So what are some of the things people should consider when they think about the future of money? So there are five things I would say that you can you should consider looking into it. It's first is human nature. So look into human nature as far as uh, you can build a very ideal system or a world, but human nature is there. Always humans do these really unpredictable things, <laughs> and uh, you got to keep that in mind. I think keeping that in your mind when you're saying, "Oh, this is a really sound principle," like people say, "Hey, people know they shouldn't drink." more than they drink or eat or whatever, they still do it. So human nature is, is one thing you should keep in mind. I think a lot, of the, a lot of the books you can read on that topic, just to understand that as you're going through money, this is something people like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talks about quite a lot. <clears throat> so I would say that's one of the things. Two, keep in mind individual versus collective, right? So don't only look at the individual, but also look at the collective, or don't only look at the collective, look at the individual, what an individual needs versus a collective society needs. I think that's what a lot of the government, how do we govern ourselves is really essential. And then the other thing is the competence of the government. So depending on where you're looking at in the vast or what you're looking at money, you do want to look at the government, how they actually operate. Are they on the upswing, downswing? How are they doing this is really, really essential. I would say you want to understand inflation. With inflation come deflation, hyperinflation. You want to understand that. We talked about a healthy economy needs 2 to 3% inflation. It's a lot of leading economists think that. So you want to do some research around that to understand why is that why long-term contracts are good for society, what we invest in our future, whether it's education, housing, businesses, and other things, transportation. And then also the importance of debt in the society as a modern economy needs to grow. I think those are some of the things that are worth thinking about on your own and understanding them. Don't let somebody else tell you. Just think about them, how essential they are when it comes to money. So right. do you want to add anything or do you think they cover most of the things? Yeah. When you think of the future of money, I think what you've outlined have been pretty on point. There's nothing that I can think of right off the back, but I think how you outlined it spot on. So FDIC bank runs, they have been everywhere, social media, keywords, when you look at the on Twitter, you can see like people hashtagging those things because they don't quite understand. And we can talk about that FDIC and bank runs. Can you give a little context into those concepts? Sure. So FDIC stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This is something created by the U.S. Congress mm-hmm. to maintain public confidence in the financial sector, in the banking sector. So in the U.S., this is portrayed into the U.S. FDIC. So $250,000 of your deposit in the bank is insured. If you're joined, it's two people, $250,000. If you're trust, you can go to $750,000. So there's a bunch of different ways 
that you feel confident in leaving money in the bank if they're FDIC insured. So basically, federal government put their approval on saying, okay, if this bank goes under, we will still come and give you your money up to this amount. So FDIC, depending on how many signers you have, it changes. Now, a bank run is basically when customers run to the bank and they want to take out their cash. So what a bank does is the way the business of the banks work is you deposit your money in the bank and the banks are allowed, depending on their size, depending on where they are, they can lend portion of that to another person. And they collect some interest and they pay you some interest or they give you the service of having a bank account. And when a bunch of people just come in and they run to the bank to take their deposits out, it's called a bank run, where the bank doesn't have, because so let's say they have $100 million, they have lent out $50 million. Now, people are asking more than $50 million. It's called a bank run where the bank doesn't have any more money. That's where the federal government comes in and they actually take over the bank. This is what happened to Silicon Valley Bank recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could or could not have anything to do with the competence of the bank, but it's just if the depositors all come in at one time, they lose confidence in the bank. They say, I'd rather take my money out. So Silicon Valley Bank essentially had a lot of large deposits from the tech industry. A lot of VCs had their money in it and they all wanted to pull it out and take it to different banks. And... That's why the bank run happened. So this has been happening for a long time. And this is just the recent one. And Silicon Valley Bank was a big failure. And, and so mid-sized bank failures, obviously, we're talking about that a little bit. Do I know you're a fortune teller, so you can't tell if this is going to continue to happen. However, what are your thoughts on this? Why this is happening or just recently, at least? It's just the confidence in the bank that people have, right? So Silicon Valley Bank, if you want to dissect it, it has a lot of deposits people had a lot of money so the fdic didn't really matter to these people they have hundreds of millions of dollars so they start taking the money out fast and uh, when the bank goes and lend money out in this case silicon valley bank invested in some long-term bonds anyhow this is all technical stuff but the bank doesn't have any more money to give out so that's where the fdic has to come in part of the regulators what they do is they say okay we learned something from this bank run. We're going to put this into new regulatory laws that this doesn't happen again. So the federal government has come out since then saying, hey, we're going to do from the postmortem, we're going to do A and B, C going forward, make sure the bank can't do this. I think that's how you secure the system more and more going forward. So you can still have mid-sized bank. Not everything turns into four major banks in the U.S., I was actually just going to ask you that, like, how do we stop monopolies from happening if the mid-sized banks are failing and the rescue is a larger bank coming in and, and buying them? Is that it, we, we won't see monopolies happening? Well, that's part of the job of the government, right? So regulating also FDIC could be from 250000 to a million dollars. People have talked about that. And some more accountability when the banks actually do some things that are breaking the law that they have in place, having some repercussion for those people, individuals who are involved. So I think it's just tightening the system is what you need to do. So I think regulators come in and they do that. 
over and over. I was in the banking for 10 years, and it just kept happening. As far as the regulators come in, they change this. Okay, we're going to put a stress test into the banking. We're going to put this into the banking. And uh, it's just like anything, it's iteration. You keep getting better at it. And uh, at least in the the short and the medium term, banks are going to be there. We don't know long run if things are going to go to blockchain or where are they going to go. But for now, that's a system we have. We make it better. Right. One of the main functions of money is store value. What makes Bitcoin the best store of value out there? I think the store of value is the fixed supply. 21 million ever Bitcoin's going to be created is what makes store of value really essential. So gold has about 2% inflation and then different things have a different inflation rate, how much supply that goes up each year. And there's a scarcity principle when it comes to store of value. And Bitcoin has 21 million that's ever going to be minted. So that makes it a good store of value for people who actually believe in the system and understand the fundamentals and want to participate in Bitcoin. Makes it a good store of value over long term. So next question for you, how can smart contracts vulnerability be identified and prevented, most importantly? So three things come to mind when you think about that. One is iteration, right? So you build first, you test it out, you change some things, the vulnerabilities, right? So that's one thing that you have. And the second is a lot of the crypto protocols. What they do is they hire auditors who audit it. And uh, those auditors are paid and they look at it. You hear mixed reactions. Some people say it's a good thing. Some people say it's not a good thing. I think time is your best tester, right? So vulnerabilities could be detected with audit and patched. And the last thing is bounties, right? So a lot of the crypto projects have bounties, like millions of dollars, saying, hey, if you find a vulnerability in our protocol, we'll pay you millions of dollars in a way people who are hackers are incentivized to actually go to the protocol rather than taking the money out of the protocol, which is a very interesting thing, how they want to get incentive aligned for the bounties, bounty hunters to actually go to the core devs saying, hey, we found this vulnerability, you should fix this, mm-hmm. and they explain to them and they get paid millions of dollars. I think those three things are essential that could prevent vulnerabilities in the future and are preventing it now. I love just some of the names that come along with this space and bounty and auditors and nodes. It's words that you're just not familiar with, but I enjoy hearing about them. (laughs) Now, just so you know, we are taking these questions that we've seen on Twitter lives and on different communities that speak into the space. So these are just questions that we took uh, on top of our learnings from our guests that have come in. So with that said, Florian Glatz discussed the role of smart contracts in the credit system that could come out of blockchain crypto system. He discussed those future competitors to the current credit systems. What does a credit score or accountability for agreements and paper trails of your past agreements look like in the future smart contract? Blockchain loans and transaction systems, what will they look like? Sure. I think that's a good question. So right now in the U.S., you have the FICO score. So you have a score of, let's say, 800. 
you go to a bank and then you present your income asset and you show them saying, hey, look, I want to get a loan. And I think on a smart contract, this is far down the line where your job could be on smart contracts. So everything that you've done could be on the smart contract, not LinkedIn, right? On a smart contract, you have achieved this stuff, right? So it makes more sense maybe for coders at this point, but it could be for anybody, right? Because it's immutable, it cannot be changed. This is what you have done for somebody, right? A review, whatever that might look like. And your salary or your contract, what you've done is all on this smart contract. So instead of going on and showing on some freelancer website, smart contract can have it saying, hey, look, I have produced this much value for this many people. I have done a million dollar worth of smart contracts. Here you go. So you have that history. You have your job. You can also have your repayment. So if you have taken some loan out from somebody on the smart contract, you can actually repay. So you have this history that's built on it. You lent that to other people. They lent that to you. This is all on a smart contract. And then eventually you become, you end up having some disputes that smart contract can handle. I think once you have this infrastructure baked, then this could be the thing that you ended up having in the future. Where it's like, hey, it's on the blockchain. This is the person who's done this. And a lot of these technologies can be combined where people can actually use this in a very practical way of lending to each other. And you can have some kind of scoring system in the future that looks something like FICO, but maybe perhaps even better. Yeah. I uh, Thinking about these future case scenarios always excites me. It's just the things that are being built in the background that we are continually to find out about it just excites me for the future. And we continue to mass adopt. We've brought this up so many times within the show of our learnings and we try to impart it on you. Then you go back and research and hopefully do it for yourself and impart it on other people. So, Vishal, is there any other things that you would like to bring up during the sh- for the show? Did you anything you thought of, anything you want to share with anybody right now? No, that's it. Just thank you for listening. We appreciate it. This has been a fun journey where we're learning and by no way we pretend to know the answers. This is where we're shining light on something you might not see. So if you're just looking on Twitter or YouTube or somewhere and somebody trying to get you to invest in their protocol, you should understand more than just putting thousand dollar, ten thousand dollar, hundred thousand dollar, whatever you want to put in. But understand what you're putting into. I think doing some homework, hopefully we give you some food for thought where you can think this through. Things like that is going to make this whole blockchain much more better. And hopefully we give our listeners a much more a 360 view rather than just showing this one thing where the narrative being Bitcoin's next like big thing is all the money's going to go into it or the narrative Bitcoin is for idiots, right? So here is every dimension that you can look into and understand that money is just a tool for people to try to get something done. Once you look at it in that way, I think it it shows you for what it is rather than, rather than oh, I don't really understand it, but I better get into this Dogecoin because Elon has 
tweeted about it. Yeah. Or this celebrity has endorsed FDX. I should buy a bunch of FDX tokens. We know Tom Brady and Steph Curry and all these guys have done it. So do your own homework, especially if you're putting your hard-earned money that that you wanted to go big, but do it strategically. Yeah, yeah. As hard as you work to earn your money, it's as hard as you should do to do the research and know if you want to put that money in that. So that's think of it like that. So. Thank you, everyone, for once again joining us for another edition of So Why Crypto. Thank you again for Kathleen, Edgar, and Francisco for joining us and being a part of the show. And for more information, So Why Crypto on everything, that's Twitter, that's our website, and that is YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll be making sure to have all kinds of content on there that you can look at, watch, and then do some research. For myself, Quay, and Vishal, thank you. So why crypto? Thank you. So why crypto? So why crypto? Why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay.